I would invite you to turn in your Bible to Genesis chapter 2. Genesis chapter 2. We're moving through this chapter slowly but surely. Uh, We'll get uh, as far as we can today. Genesis chapter 2. I'll begin reading at verse 8. The Lord God planted a garden toward the east in Eden. And there he placed the man whom he had formed. Out of the ground, the Lord God caused the ground, caused to grow every tree that is pleasing to the sight and good for food. The tree of life also in the midst of garden, of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now a river flowed out of Eden to water the garden and from there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is Pishon, and it flowed around the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold, and the gold of that land is good. The Bedellum and the Onyx Stone are there. The name of the second river is Gihon. It flowed around the whole land of Cush. The name of the third river is Tigris. It flowed east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. Stop right there. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you for your word. I I pray, Lord, that as we look at this text, this description, that we would see applications for our own life. Uh, May we understand this text and understand why you've included it in your word. And then, Lord, may we apply it. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. There's a general observation uh, that theologians have made throughout the ages uh, that there's three moral, uh, three stages of moral accountability. That's just a kind of a generic term. But the first stage is moral innocence. Moral innocence. And it's just ignorance of sin. Babies come into the world just innocent. They're ignorant of sin, their own sinfulness. It's just the, the idea of being without consciousness of their own sinfulness or the guilt even associated with that sin. So, moral innocence. And then the second one is a time of, of testing or a kind of a probation period. It's, a, it's a, a pivotal moment, a pivotal time, maybe an event, maybe an age. Uh, of maturity, level of maturity that they come to, but they become aware that they are sinful. So they move from innocence to the uh, just the becoming aware of their sinfulness or just the fact that they are sin, that they do sin. <clears throat> They're going in a sinful direction. And then the third phase is just all-out guilt. It's because we have completely now aware of our sinfulness and its deliberate sin is against the command of God. We are aware of that and, and we move into that and we just accept that. And that's the three stages. And it it formulates kind of an idea of that it has been labeled uh, an age of accountability. And it's this idea, it's actually defined by the the uh, the Puritans uh, we, we see it in Scripture scantily, but it's, it seems to be there. And there's a, 
we, we see it in the, the catechisms and the confessions. The, the Puritans had to deal with this because there was a lot of babies that were being, uh, that were, were um, not coming to full term or they were, they were dying at infancy. And the birth rate was, or the uh, death rate was high among the, the children. And so they had to think through what does God think about this? And so they come up with this idea of an age of accountability. And the idea is something like this, that, that the children are not held accountable by God for their sins until they reach a certain age or maturity level, and that if a child dies before it reaches that age of accountability, the child then will be, because of the grace of God, because of the mercy of God, he will be granted entrance into heaven. And we see kind of that idea, and they, they would point to the verse of uh, Acts chapter 1 and verse 20, where it says that, For since the creation of the world, the invisible attributes of God, His eternal power and divine nature, having been clearly seen, and here's the key term, being understood through what has been made, so there's understanding, a clear now understanding, because they see that, that God has created these things, made these things. There's obviously a God. They're now held accountable. And so the last phrase is, so that they, may, they are without excuse. So then the reverse would be true if uh, using this logic, that uh, if, if there's no understanding, then they're not held accountable. Okay? And, and that's the... That's the idea. And it's based upon that verse. But, but also, you see it a little bit in the book of Jonah. In fact, the last book of Jonah, or the last chapter in Jonah, uh, in the, I'm sorry, the last verse in the last chapter of Jonah, it's when Jonah didn't want to go to Nineveh. God says, no, you need to go to Nineveh. And uh, he was reluctant because he knew the grace and the mercy of God. He knew that if he preached the gospel, then God would spare that city. And Jonah gets upset, and you know the the story. But let me read this last verse. Because it kind of gives us an insight here to the grace of God. Should I not compare... Should I not have compassion on Nineveh, the great city, in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know the difference between their right and their left hand, as well as animals. There's, there's a lack of understanding. There's a lot of children in that city. They don't know the right from their left. That's the level of understanding that they have. And, and God is saying, should I not have compassion on them? I, I'm a gracious God. I'm going to, to spare their life. That's the... That's the idea that God is gracious. Uh, that would include, in Nineveh, of course, there would have been m- millions probably of, of babies that would have been sacrificed to the gods in Nineveh. And we even see that today. We would include special needs kids that we would see today. We know uh, that the children are aborted every day here in America. And you have to think, what is, what is the Lord doing with those children and then we see in Genesis chapter 18, we see uh, that Abraham pled for Sodom and Gomorrah, actually for his nephew, Lot, in Genesis chapter 18 and verse 25. And, and he is appealing to this same idea, this grace of God. 
And he says this in Genesis 18, verse 25, far be it from me to or far be it from you to do such a thing, to slay the righteous with the wicked so that the righteous and the wicked are treated alike. Far be it from you. Shall not the God, not the judge of the earth deal justly? And he's pleading to the Lord for these these righteous people that may be in Sodom. And it came down to just a few, a handful, and then God got them out of there. And, and, and Moses' theology is good, that God is gracious, and we appeal to, to his grace in these situations. And then one other passage that we could look at, and that would be in 2 Samuel, 2 Samuel chapter 12, and verse 23 the circumstances here is David has had a, an affair with Bathsheba and out of, out of that affair came uh, a, a son that was born to David. And that son was going to die in infancy and David pleaded to the Lord. He prayed and he fasted to spare this little baby. And of course, the Lord took the baby. And here's what David, here's how David responded in 2 Samuel chapter 12. After the death of this baby, he says, but now he has dead or now he uh, has died, why should I fast? Why should I keep on praying? Why should I appeal to God? Can I bring him back? And that's a rhetorical question. The answer is no. I will go to him, but he cannot return to me. In David's theology and his thinking, this baby boy that was born to him is now in the hands of God in heaven. And he says, I can go to him, but he cannot come back to me. And that's David's, that's David's thinking. And so you, you have this, there's not a lot of information here in Scripture. There's not a lot of support, really. And, and I understand if you, you would just do away with this doctrine. But there's, there's a little bit of evidence that, that um, God is gracious in that He applies the uh, payment for sin to these babies. Maybe to these mentally handicapped people these, these that uh, have not... Uh, the capacity to understand their sinful state and to understand their need for a Savior. And so uh, that, this is the position that I hold to. Now, again, there's not a whole lot of information, not a, not a whole lot of evidence in Scripture, but it does seem to, to, to point to a, a maturity level there and a process to um, moral accountability. That you come to this point and you begin to realize, I am a sinful person. Now, in this passage, this passage, you're probably wondering, how in the world does this relate to Genesis? But in Genesis chapter 2, the passage that we read earlier, uh, we see that Moses is describing the Garden of Eden. You say, well, that's even more far-fetched. The Garden of Eden, maybe even the location of this garden... um, and we would like to even know more about this garden, a better description, more about the animals. Tell me what it looked like. Give me some more information. Well, that's not really the point that Moses is going for. He's giving us enough information here, but he's driving at something else. The emphasis here is upon setting a stage for this time of testing for Adam. This this kind of... Uh, uh, time that Adam is going to have to come to a realization and make up his mind which direction he's going to go. And the Lord kind of puts him in this situation, this moral testing, if you will. 
And Adam, of course, he was innocent. He didn't have a a sin nature like you and I would have. But he was a free moral agent would be the the term, the technical term. But he was innocent at the time of creation. What he did have is knowledge. He was not a a baby. He was he was a a full grown man. Uh, And he had he had understanding. He had understanding. And he needed to come to a a decisive at, at a decisive moment. And it had to be clear and unmistakable rejection of God and, and, uh, and God's will and following His own will. Now, you understand that. <clears throat> Adam couldn't have just slipped into sin. This is too, the, the stakes were too high. There's too much at risk here. He couldn't have just slipped into to sin, like neglect of the garden that God put him in charge of, or neglect of his wife, and in some kind of passive way, kind of slips into sin. That's not at all what we see in Scripture. We see just the opposite. We see all the focus is upon this moment at this time, and the context then of this moment is important. And that's what we see. That's the point of this passage. This is there's something going on here that's that Moses is is driving at. Is Adam going to be dependent upon God, loyal, obedient? Is he going to return this love that uh, God has shown to him, or is he going to want his independence here? And there's a point of decision, and Moses records for us this fall, and you know the story, and we'll get into that in future. But you know this, this, this fall, and, and what was at, at risk, if he would fall into this, it would bring the whole human race down into sinfulness and a slave to sinfulness. So this is one of the most noteworthy passages, really, in Scripture. And it's a, a devastating event to the human hist- in human history, and, and this passage is so important. In fact, the theology that comes from these next few verses are are essential for us to understand. Theologically significant. And it's important. Moses answers for us the question, very important question is, how in the world did we get so messed up? If, if Adam was put in charge, how in the world now is Satan in charge? And that's what this... This passage is going to help answer for us. He's going to shed light on this. It was important for Moses then to share with us the context of this testing. The the context of, of what's going on. So it's not so much a description of the garden as it is the context of what's going to happen in that garden. Now... And what we see and what we know throughout Scripture and even on our own life, that God tests us, folks, doesn't He? He uses the circumstances of our life. He uses the, the situations of our life to, to test us. We see that in James, the passage James one twelve, and James points out that He doesn't tempt us, but He does test us. And Adam was about to be tested, and it was going to be important Important enough for Moses to shed light on this. Adam is a free moral agent and his testing was going to determine where he stands in his accountability before the Lord. That he is accountable before the Lord. Now the question is, what is the context here of this fall, 
of man. And why is the context so important? What does Moses point out to us here that's so important for us to see? Now, last week, remember, we we left Adam and he had been formed by God and and God breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and and he became animated, a living being. And, And Adam then is set up for success. And we see that. In this passage, we see the focus now on the garden and the beauty of the garden, the resources of the garden. But the point of the passage we keep coming back to is the context of this garden is the context of Adam's testing. There's two points, and that's the description of the garden and the caretaker of the garden. Now, today we'll probably just have time just for the description of the garden, so... uh, Just be prepared for that. Let's look at the description of the Garden of Eden and why it's important. We see two things. It's beauty and it's resources. Look at verse 8. The Lord God planted a garden toward the east in Eden. So that's kind of a, a location here that would have been east of where Moses would have been. Um... And it was in Eden. Eden was the, the place in this, this Garden of Eden. And there he placed the man whom he had formed. Now, just like Moses always does, he gives us a little statement here. It's a completed action. Um, he, he takes the man. He places the man in the garden, completed. But then he goes back in verses 19 to 14. Or, I'm sorry, 9 to 14. And he gives us the details. Again, a pattern of Moses. I want you to see that. Moses wrote this. It's a pattern that Moses had. And we don't know the location of this. It was east of where Moses would have been at that time, probably somewhere in Babylon, maybe in the Mesopotamian Valley. Uh, we don't know exactly where that is. But verse 8 tells us what we need to know, and that God planted a garden. That God did this. Now what we see is a deliberate, intentional act of God. He didn't just call it into existence. He could have done that. But He didn't call it into existence. He did it. In fact, in verse 9, we see a little bit more of the details. He caused to grow. He grew. Uh, And out of the ground, the Lord caused to grow every tree um, that uh, was good for for to see, uh, for for sight, to pleasant to look at, and for food. Now, before I, I get into these two categories of trees here, I want you to notice, though, that this is a deliberate, intentional act of God. And what you would have seen in this garden is intelligent design. Now, you can be walking along the beach, and you can you might see some rocks kind of piled up. Or where the waves come, maybe pile them up. But if you see three or four rocks piled up, you know, okay, somebody's been here. That's a deliberate, intentional act. This is a deliberate, intentional act of God. You see, you see order. You see a pattern here. You see design. God did this. And what did He do? He caused some trees to grow. And we see two different trees here. In this garden that he placed. The trees that were important to him to put in this garden. Now there's all kinds of other trees. But the trees that were important. The two categories are. Number one. They were pleasant. Pleasant to the sight. Did you ever think about that? A tree just being. That's just a beautiful tree. 
It was pleasing, pleasant. Maybe there's aroma coming from it. Maybe there was color that, that said, wow, that just stood out. And it was just pleasing. And the Lord wanted that tree in this. It, was, it made the garden beautiful. And then the second was that it is food. It was edible. Edible. So you see three things in this, this new home of Adam. Um, that God placed. You see order, design. And maybe even even hedges around. You, you, you don't want a brontosaurus kind of just trompsing through and kind of coming into the garden or something like that. So maybe there was design there that you, you had this entrance. In fact, we know that there was only one entrance because there's an uh, an angel that was placed there. So there's maybe maybe some hedges or or some trees just just right, beautifully shaped to keep out the, the other animals. You have order, design, pattern. You have beauty and you have food. Now, folks, those are all the comforts of home, right? I mean, that's where you want to be. Ladies, you want to make a great home right there is the good good ingredients there. The focus of your ministry is is right there. It's a good thing and, and God places His blessing and says, this is good. This is home. When we see then this, this picture of Eden as pleasant. In fact, that's kind of an understatement. Uh, to say that it's, it's suitable for Adam and uh, it's a suitable in, environment is really kind of an understatement. It's, it's not. It's more than that. The Babylonian uh, language that would have been spoken in Moses' day has a, a term for Eden. Eden, a. And it means oasis. And it's a, it describes a, a lush green land. It's, it's like paradise. In fact, that would be the, a better Hebrew word would be paradise. And we might even look at uh, Grand Central, I mean, we, uh, that Central Park in New York. But really, the, a better description would be a, the old English gardens. The English royal gardens that would be, that you'd go into and just be pleasant. You'd see design. You'd see purpose. And, in this case, you'd see the most beautiful trees that God has created. And you see the fruit that would be coming from this. So it was a place where God would come down in the cool of the evening and, and walk with Adam. It would be kind of like a, a divine sanctuary. That's a beautiful thought. This is, this is home for Adam and Eve. Now there's two trees that are specifically named here. Number one is the tree of life. The tree of life. It was in the middle of the garden, right in the middle of the garden. So it was easy access. And we look over at chapter 3 and verse 22, and we see that um, after sin had come into the world, that God makes a, a mention of this tree of life. He says, Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. And now he might stretch out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. We don't want him continue to eat from this. We don't want him to live forever in this sinful state. It's a blessing to die when you're in a sinful state. And, and it was a grace of God that he put this angel there. But what you see is the properties of this uh, of this tree is it, it has the ability to sustain life. 
throughout all eternity. In fact, we see the same tree in Revelation chapter 22. Revelation chapter 22, verse 2, John gives us a description of this tree. It's going to be in the new heaven and the new earth. And he says, in the middle of of, uh, its street, one... Uh, on one, on either side of the river was the tree of life. There's two of them. One on one side, one on the other side. Now, here's a description. Bearing 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. A different, different fruit every month. That would be a great tree. That's pretty cool. And the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nation. Special healing powers. This is a, a tree that, that has kind of supernatural powers that can sustain life um, that, that actually, I guess, prevent or, or slow down the, the, the whole aging process of the body. And that would be great, wouldn't it? That would be paradise. That would be super. The question is, why would God, why would God create a, a second agency, if you will, for life? Why would he? Why would he do that? Um, he is the giver of life, and and he can create. He can he can give life, and, and he can sustain life directly or indirectly. That's what we see. God has the ability to be able to do that. Why would he create that kind of thing? He could create if man man would just never die, just sustain himself in that without without dependence upon this tree. Let me show you uh, maybe. Some insight here in Deuteronomy chapter 8 kind of gives us a, a glimpse, maybe the, the thinking that God has here. Deuteronomy chapter 8 and verse 3, this is a wonderful thought. <clears throat> You'll know the context here. Verse 3 says, He humbled you and let you be hungry. This is the children of Israel in the wilderness. And fed you with manna which you did not know, nor did your fathers know it, that he might make you understand that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. What's, what's going on there? He wanted the children of Israel to know on a daily basis that you are dependent on me. Now, God could have just sustained man without any kind of secondary agent like this. But he has a secondary agent, I believe, to show man his dependence, his constant dependence upon God every day. Every day. In fact, what what are we instructed by Christ to pray? Give us this day our daily bread. Folks, we are dependent upon God. This is his universe. This is still his oxygen that we use. It's still, I know we get it from Walmart, but, but it's, it's his food that sustains us. And he sustains our very life. Uh, we need to keep that in mind. The second tree, let's just touch on this quickly and then we'll... This is the, the tree of knowledge of good and evil. The second tree. Back in Genesis chapter 2. Verse 9, out of the ground, the Lord God caused to grow every tree, the tree of life in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now, this is where you begin to see this time of testing. What's going on here? There's very little said about the tree. 
I don't think there's any special properties. It wasn't poisonous. If you eat it, they ate of it. They didn't die because of its poison or anything like that. Doesn't seem to be any kind of special powers. It, but it, it probably comes down just to the title. This is the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And, and the title kind of indicates then that this is a time of testing. I think that's kind of what you see. Because there's very little explanation here, very little understanding, we have to derive our understanding, our purpose, from the role that this tree plays. And this tree is the testing ground. This, this tree is, is where the focus lies. And this is the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now, we'll get further instructions in verse 15. Like I said, it doesn't seem to have any special powers or anything like that. They knew good, but they didn't know evil. God said every day that He would create, He said it was good. At the end of this creation, He said everything was is very good. So they knew good, and it came from God, the hand of God. But now, now they have the chance to experience evil. Now, some theologians say, well, that's just talking about sexual awareness. And we know that Adam and Eve, they become sexually aware, uh, filled in guilt and shame after the sin. Or some theologians say, well, no, that's just talking about moral uh, discrimination, just being able to discern kind of thing morally, right from wrong, that kind of thing. Or moral uh, responsibility, they, they know, they feel the heavy weight of that moral responsibility. But it's probably just talking about moral experience. The experience of being independent of God. Independent of God's Word. Rejecting God's Word. Now, here's the key, I think. That disobedience to God, folks, is evil. Now, sometimes we don't think about it like that, but it is evil. And this is the tree of the knowledge of good... And evil. And that disobedience, just the fact that they would disobey. It could have been any tree. But they disobeyed. And they became rebels. Rebels. Uh, R.C. Sproul said that this is an attempt to know all apart from God. We, we want to know it all uh, apart from God. And we see in the book of Proverbs, Proverbs chapter 1, verse 7, that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of what? Wisdom. We get our wisdom and understanding from Him. He tells us. He informs us. We don't just go off on our own. That's just a rebellion. And, we, and what you see is an independent act here, an acting independently of God, being autonomous from God, the very life giver, the, the one who sustains us. And that's what Adam and Eve were faced with. The decision. And we see in Scripture that man must live by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. We, we are dependent upon God. So this is a, a tree of potential testing. Or this tree provides testing for our forefathers, our, our parents, the first parents. And they were representative of the entire human race, folks. Representative of the whole, whole human race. And if Adam and Eve failed this test, here's the thing. If they failed this test, looking in this environment, they could not blame the environment, could they? 
It was good. Couldn't blame God. Couldn't blame anyone else. Couldn't blame anything else. Adam and Eve, they sinned in the context of goodness. They sinned in the context of God's love and His mercy and His His, uh, kindness to them, abundance to them. There was no lack. There was no hunger, no no void in their life, no emptiness would, that would cause them to, to sin. In fact, everything was pointing to obedience and they went counter to that obedience. And folks, similarly, we, we, we say the same thing, that we cannot blame our environment for the sins that we commit. Man sins when things are good. When things are going well. One commentary said, I I like this, that God's love and His provision for man made made Adam's rebellion inexcusable. Without excuse. I mean, it wasn't wasn't bad circumstances. It, It wasn't even questionable circumstances. This was perfection. And Adam and Eve, Rebelled. But that exposes our own heart, doesn't it? It it tells us what we're made of. How often, folks, do we blame our environment for our sins? How often do we we excuse it away or or, or say there's special circumstances here, unique circumstances? Or we blame it on others? But the reality is, folks, is... And this is hard for us to face is we just want our independence from God. In fact, we want to be God. We, we want to have the autonomy. We want to know all the knowledge apart from God. We want to live forever apart from God. And I, I think we see in this context here, and we'll just close with this. We see is the Adam and Eve are going to be tested. They're facing something in the context of good and beauty and kindness and love from God. And they cannot cannot blame God. They cannot blame their environment. It's just a choice. A choice of autonomy. I want to do it my way. I want to go where I want to go. I don't want to live by faith. I don't want to be dependent upon God. And the sinful heart rises up in rebellion against God. Rebellion against God's Word. Folks, we're just beginning to get a glimpse of the sinfulness of sin. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank You for just Your Word. We didn't get very far today. But Lord, we got far enough to know that in Your goodness, in Your your kindness, You you tested Adam. and You provided that testing. And that He needed that testing. He needed to be tested. He needed to be shown that he is not God. He needed to be shown there's a distinction between him and his creator. And 
And he needed to understand that. And Lord, I just thank you for that, even that testing ground, that perfect environment that was was given. Lord, how often, how often do we sin in spite of your goodness to us? We sin in spite of your kindness and your blessing on a daily basis, Lord. Lord, may we guard our hearts. May we evaluate. May we not blame you or anyone else for our own sinfulness. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.